You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Did humans and dinosaurs ever coexist? Wait, wait, wait. I'm serious. Some people really believe this is true. Let's set the tone properly. Okay, that's better. It has to be one of the most thrilling ideas ever. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Marion C. Cooper, Michael Crichton, Steven Spielberg, and many others have tackled the idea through fiction. But there are many who believe in the astonishing idea that there may still be places where giant sauropod dinosaurs roam Earth's remote swamps and rivers. Sure, modern paleontology suggests that some dinosaurs do roam the Earth today, but I'm not talking about birds. Today, on Monster Talk, we're going to talk about giant sauropods in the jungles of the Congo, the creature known as Mokilimambembe. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with my co-hosts, Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, we discuss monsters, science, and the intersection of myth and reality. Today we're talking about the possibility of dinosaurs living in the Congo. There are some who believe that in the jungles of the Congo there lives a sauropod dinosaur which has survived through to modern times and is known to natives as Mokile Mabimbe. Now, you may have never heard of this monster, but the concept is probably familiar. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World is probably the most famous dinosaurs alive in modern times type story. But Tarzan author Edgar Rice Burroughs also wrote of dinosaurs living in both the Hollow Earth scenario and above the Arctic line. Yet, it isn't just fiction that brings us such tales. Quite a few expeditions to the Congo region in Africa have come back with stories about such a creature. Ivan Sanderson and Roy Mackle, both notable cryptozoologists, did expeditions, and Mackle, in particular, focused on finding evidence for the creature outside of legend. And before them, Carl Hagenbeck 
claimed that African cave paintings seemed to support the idea that a brontosaurus-type creature was alive in those mysterious jungles. Hagenbach's work was popular and predates Doyle and Burroughs by several years. I will put some links to those works in the show notes if you'd like to read them. Regardless of the reality of such a proposition, these are interesting ideas to contemplate. Yet despite all the expeditions, and there have been many, to date we have nothing to show for this research except for stories. But according to paleontologist Dr. Donald Prothero, there are many reasons to be highly skeptical of the very idea of a sauropod being alive today. We caught up with Don at TAM 9 to discuss Mokilia Mbembe and his new book on cryptozoology that he's co-authored with Skeptic Magazine's own Daniel Loxton. The book's not out yet, but I've had a chance to read most of it, and I think it will be a great addition to my bookshelf, or Kindle, whenever it's released in 2012. Monster Dog. Today we have Don Prothero back, Dr. Don. Do people call you Dr. Don, Dr. Prothero? Oh, my occasionally my kids are goofing off of the students will call me D-Pro. D-Pro. Oh. <laughs> One or two of them. B-Rad, oh. D-Pro. Yeah, but, I'm, but I'm pretty casual with my students. K-Stone, Kaz, Kaz. I'm starting to nickname, yeah. I, I did not know that. Is that a common abbreviation for Karen? Oh, yeah, well, for Barry's Bears and Warren's Wolves and Karen's Cats and Sharon's Shares. Well, definitely not any other country has that. That's <laughs> wild. That sounds like a magic spell. <laughs> <laughs> That's really English. It's yeah. very colorful. So, um, and we're going to talk today about Makile Babimbe. Makile Mabimbe. You've been practicing. Uh, well, it's like a tongue twister. So. There you go. So, Makile Mabimbe, the possible, possible, plausible. Highly implausible. You're looking at me like it's plausible. Likely. So, Makili Mbembe is allegedly, but at least according to cryptozoologists, uh, a possibly surviving dinosaur. Now, and, and specifically, some sort of sauropod. So, just to sort of start out, uh, what's the difference between a sauropod and a theropod? Sauropods are the so-called long-necked dinosaurs. People used to call Brontosaurus is a common one. Correctly named Apatosaurus now. Uh, Diplodocus, Brachiosaurus, all those ones you see in Jurassic Park, uh, those are sauropods. Really long neck, long tail, and the giant-sized ones are all sauropods. Theropods are the, the meat-eating dinosaurs. T-Rex is one, of course. Okay, so what about the uh, like Triceratops? Where does that fall? The Ceratopsians. Okay. They're a different group altogether. They get their own little classifications. Oh, yeah, there's, cool. there's hundreds of different kinds of dinosaurs. Hundreds? Yeah. That's a lot. At the generic level, there's <laughs> close to a thousand genera now. So. Wow. Uh, they keep them multiplying every year now at this point. Even though they're dead, which is remarkable. I know. I know. No, but why, there are more paleontologists than there ever were. That's part of the reason. I don't want to hog the questions, but why didn't the dinosaurs survive the biblical flood? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, a bigger question is why didn't they survive the events of 65 million years ago? But that's another topic. So. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I mean, I, I guess, uh, in, so Jack Horner, I guess the first person got me turned on to the idea of uh, that the birds are dinosaurs, but apparently right. that's a, a pretty popular theory. Well, that's been around since the late 60s. Yeah. I, I gathered it was not you know just Jurassic Park, right? But no. Um, so how did the theropods? Some of them survived, right? Obviously, or we wouldn't have the bird. The bird branch of the theropod family tree is still with us. That's yeah. Right. So, did we have a good working theory for how big of a group it was to survive? Was it a really, really narrow group, or was it's, it's hard to say because birds generally don't fossilize easily because they're delicately built to have bones which are very light and hollow. So. With the exception of places that are extraordinary preservation, uh, bird fossil records are pretty poor. And so you get in these, these windows where you get lots and lots of really good fossils because of that good preservation, and then you get almost nothing in between. So you can't go and 
march up on the rock record right up to the end of the Cretaceous where the boundary lies and say bird fossil here and then bird, no bird fossil there because the quality of preservation is just too hard to do. It's much better with things like a crocodilian or a turtle where they fossilize pretty reliably. Right. So the crocodilians survived for sure. Crocodilians went right through and didn't blink. Turtles went right through, no problems. All the various amphibians, no problems. Uh, it was only only the non-bird dinosaurs that died out. And, and the crocodilian lines that survived, do we know, were they uh, saltwater lines or were they fresh, a mix? They were, they were a mix of both. Uh, most of them are freshwater at that point. There weren't yeah. too many marine crocodiles, except for the ones like geosaurs, which were gone long before that. That's an exciting mystery. Is it still a popular research topic? Uh, not as much as it was in the 80s, but uh, it's still, as far as I'm concerned, an open question because there are people who have given it this open and shut interpretation of this, you know, meter at the earth end of story. And uh, most paleontologists won't agree with that because the evidence is more, much more complicated than that. It does make a great visual in a documentary, though. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, but so. simplistic doesn't make it right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all this time. Science is a lot more complicated in many topics. Sorry, I'm hogging all the questions. I like dinosaurs. So <laughs> what are some of the claims, then, that have come forward about this creature? Uh, about what well, killing Bembry now we're talking mm. or no, yes. there's monster talk right? <laughs> make my transition fast here um, well as I was reading through the literature on it it's, it's, it actually has this sort of a mixed bag of, of reports most of which came from uh, early from missionaries and then from a number of explorers in Africa in various parts of the upper Congo Basin which is in Congo and Cameroon and other places like that and uh, their, their descriptions are very inconsistent. I mean, yes, sauropod-like is a common one, but there are descriptions that look like other kinds of dinosaurs, and our descriptions look like nothing that we know about, including any dinosaur we've heard of. And that I found as I was researching the book we're working on was tipped of the history of most cryptids. That one of the first signs of trouble is that there are no consistent uh, threads in the description that everybody's version of is different than the last. You're talking about missionaries. It makes it sound like it's 19th century or 20th no, it, century. Um, I, recent claims? Yeah, there's a couple that were 19th century, but most come from uh, the mid to late 20th century. And it isn't even uh, a lot of them. I mean, when I, when I uh, started researching through this, uh, it doesn't have nearly as many reports that say as Nessie does or some of the lake monsters, uh, the Nessie. Uh, it's, it's actually a fairly limited set of uh, very inconsistent observations. So... Uh, What's interesting about that, though, and this is something I, I, I stumbled on this topic by accident. I got a call back uh, three years ago now from a producer from Monster Quest, and they were going to do an episode of Michele Bumente, and they wanted me to be the token skeptic on that. <laughs> and uh, so I agreed to do that, and they came over the following fall or following winter to film in my, my college uh, department while their classes were out of session, so it was easy to set up. And uh, so it was this uh, long uh, story, which I put in the book, book we're working on, about uh, you know, sitting there in, a, in this in this hot seat while they had the lights on me, and they tried to th- see if they could throw me off balance. <laughs> and uh, so they 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 uh, do the standard things where they ask me questions that we'll be probably talking about in a minute here. But then they hand me this shapeless lump of plaster, and it was all, all wrapped up very carefully. And they have the cameras going, you know, and they say, don't unwrap it till we say so. And they hand me this package, unwrap it. It's a shapeless lump of plaster. They say, what do you think that is? I said, well, it's a shapeless lump of plaster. And then they said, well, here's a picture it came from. Now, let's pretend we're unwrapping it again. Now, let's see what you're... It's still a shapeless lump of plaster. And they kept doing this about four takes before they realized I wasn't going to say, oh, it's a sauropod track, because it wasn't anything. <laughs> and uh, and the, the picture was even less useful than the, than the shapeless lump of plaster. Apparently, they saw, saw, saw this thing. They looked like a track to them on the, on the ground when they did this expedition, which I'll tell you about that in a minute. 
and uh, they poured plaster into a couple of the holes there, and that was their idea of a footprint. And of course, we have a tremendous literature on what dinosaur footprints actually look like of every kind of dinosaur. We have a very clear idea what to expect, and this nothing close. Yeah, I think we actually did uh, an episode on the Paluxy tracks. Yes. And, uh, right. That's and I thought it's favorite. Yes. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that that um, uh, this this tie. And I guess we'll get into that is the the tie between Machili Babimbe and creationism as uh, a, an alternative to uh, evolutionary theory. Right. Well, that's what I discovered. Yeah. I, when I did this, I just did this blind. You know, I said, oh, we'd like to interview you. Uh, they gave me you know, a half a day where they, they filmed a bunch of stuff. and They kept a pretty big, big chunk of it because I was the only other voice on the thing besides their, their main characters. And then they had uh, Gibbon and what's his name, the other creationists who do this thing. But they show the entire... The Monster Quest footage is all this, you know, mysterious, spooky river cruise up the river, you know, in, in Cameroon, and they supposed explorers, you know, and they never identify their affiliation mm-hmm. or anything about their training. They just say these are uh, cryptid, uh, cryptozoology explorers, and you never realize that these guys are from Bible colleges. That's all the advanced uh-huh. training they have. Their degree is from mm-hmm. a Bible college. They're not zoologists or any way trained in relevant fields at all. And I looked at that first uh, first time I saw the whole show, and I said, what the heck are these guys doing? They have no clues to how to do field biology. And I've had a lot of formal training in field biology. And there's very specific things you know how to do, and especially if you're working in an area like that. And it was just a classic case of these two clowns are bumbling around in front of a camera. And, uh, and of course, the camera crew doesn't know the difference either. But anyone who knows something about field biology can tell they don't have a clue what they're doing. You know, they're making up wild stories out of the middle of you know, nowhere, which have no context whatsoever, and, and they show no sign of understanding what they're doing. And I thought, well, who are these guys? And then only later I realized these are creationists, <laughs> none of which this episode ever does to identify them. Well, they, if you think they have no qualifications, they do have the one important qualification if you're looking for a dinosaur in the jungles of Africa. Faith. Yes. And That's money. A, yeah, well, and money. Those are two, <laughs> two qualifications, yeah. So. Well, at least if you're going to be surprised on camera, at least it's not by Chris Hansen. Yeah. That could be. Yeah. That could be I guess you're right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, I was going to ask about <laughs> about um, about some of the, the, the folklore behind uh, the, the beast. I seem to recall some stories that, uh, that it ate pygmies and that some of the stories were that it, its meat was actually toxic. Um, yeah, I read stories like that too. And again, it's it's a wide wide spectrum of different kinds of things. That what are some of the, what, what are some of the stories about? Uh, they're mostly along those lines. You know, they 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 tend to describe something that's a big underwater monster most of the time. It comes up, and it's in most versions, it's ferocious. It overthrows boats. You know, it kills people uh, randomly. Uh, they're terrible. Well, the natives are all terrified of it. Um, and it's it's very strange. But the descriptions is that just don't aren't very consistent. And one of the things that was striking about that to me. As a, and you see this on that Monster Quest episode as well, but it, it's, it goes to the older literature is that you know they don't you 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 go to these peoples the native peoples of that part of Africa, and you can show them pictures of animals, and then if you put an animal picture in front of them that resembles a sauropod, you know it's sort of like leading the witness. You, you create the image in their mind that that's what they want, and you don't know for sure. In fact, I don't even know that I trust the translators right there on the TV show to actually tell them what they're being saying. But um, well, actually, that you mentioned that. I had an opportunity to do some correspondence with herpetologist Kate Jackson, and she wrote a book called Mean and Lowly Things, uh-huh. uh, Snake Science and Survival in the Congo. And for her research, she went and lived in the Congo for a while to yeah. study snakes. Yeah. And while she was there, uh, she had a couple of interesting things happen. One was that she went swimming, and um, 
while she was in the water, a local saw her in the water and started yelling um, effectively that there was a mermaid in the water. Um, and so she got out and was like, you know, what's going on? And, and, and it turned out that the woman had never seen, you know, a white woman swimming yeah. in the river. And she right. it was something so completely unknown to her. She called it by the thing that would have been like a mermaid, but it was like a creature that lives in the water, part human. And it just, she was just trying to use a word to describe what she saw. And pertinent to Makili Mabimbe, she said that one translation that the, that's commonly used is that it's this dinosaur creature, but it can also mean thing that isn't real. Yeah. And with that, which is a, a really important, uh, that's a very big issue, especially yeah. for those who are cultural and anthropology inclined. I mean, people in that part of the world often don't make the same distinction between what's real and not real mm-hmm. that we in the Western culture do. And then their mythological beings are just as real to them as things they go and actually kill. And uh, so uh, you know, some kind of naive uh, creationist uh, explorer, quote-unquote, uh, gets them to say, oh, that's what killing Mopembe hasn't established the animal's real. It's only established they may have some kind of a name for it, but it may just be a, a legendary. That's version. a good point. Good point. Another another version of it was interesting was that uh, you, you realize that you know we have this completely distorted notion of what animals of Africa live like and where they are, and uh, several of the versions of this have descriptions that actually closely resemble a rhino. And you say, well, why would that be? Well, these people, if they're jungle dwellers, they'll never see a rhino in their lifetime. Rhinos live in savannas and in open plains, and there are no jungle-dwelling rhinos in Africa. And so for them accidentally to see a rhino is just as mysterious as if they'd seen a sauropod. And we don't think about that because we don't realize rhinos don't live in the jungle. It's not the, not the kid version of Africa. So uh, there's a lot of reasons that those people could have interesting concepts of things that they, they call names that don't necessarily actually match a living creature or if they do match a living creature, it's not necessarily a creature that's that mysterious because it may just be an animal that doesn't live in that part of the world and they don't travel that widely outside of their river basin, typically. I've, I've also heard uh, uh, the suggestion that um, the frequency in, of, of modern sightings can be directly tied to the fact that the locals have learned that if uh, people come up the river uh, asking to see Makila Mbembe that they will spend a lot of money and time, That's right? right? Yeah, uh, yeah right. well, I think that applies to uh, pretty much all the cryptids, right? Yeah. I think mm-hmm. Once people discover there's money to be made by telling you what you want to hear, yeah. they tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> yeah. That's a big risk. So, um, yeah. So, so if if hypothetically, if if there were, well, actually, let's go back to our, our other line of thinking. Right now, there's no reason to suspect any sauropods made it through the KT boundary. That's correct. And there's right. good reason. There's strong negative evidence to that regard. It's not just that we you know, don't have fossils of them. We're talking about an excellent fossil record for all of Africa, first of all. Uh, it's not bad, as most people think, because although it's not great right there in the Congo River Basin, these animals lived in any sizable populations. That's issue number one. There had to be many of them, not just one of them. A sizable population of them they would have left a fossil record in other parts of Africa as well, which has changed climate many times. And, uh, and then we, get, yeah, we have outstanding fossil records of the whole Mesozoic of much of Africa, uh, especially Eastern Africa, where a lot of these sauropods actually were found for the first time. The best brachiosaurus specimen comes from Tanzania, which is just a you know, few, few hundred kilometers to the east of that, uh, with some South Africa. And then as you get into the Cenozoic, after the non-bird dinosaurs vanished, 
uh, we have many places where we yield very good records, and there are plenty of large animals preserved. The earliest relatives of the Mastodon and Mammoth come from Africa, and they're large, and some of them are really large. And there's other extinct creatures like Arsinoatheres and so on that come from these, these Cenozoic beds. So there's, there's no reason to believe that a large animal would not also show up if such a Mokelion bumbum exists. And that not just applies to Africa, that's worldwide. The, the, the non-bird dinosaurs vanish completely in all deposits younger than 65 million years anywhere you find them. And that is, you know, they say, well, negative evidence doesn't prove something, but we're talking thousands of localities and hundreds of thousands of specimens, and large animals especially are really hard to miss in the fossil record. We don't, don't end up losing them that often, especially if they were, they were once abundant, right? They were numerous in almost all Mesozoic localities, and they're just gone in all Cenozoic localities. What? Why hasn't the, the sauropod body type ever been reproduced through convergence, do you think? Um... Well, it's a speculative question, but it, it, wildly, which I'm yes, very fond of. Um, <laughs> the closest mammals have ever come to that was the, the big rhinos I worked on, those Dricothere rhinos, which are about the size of five elephants in weight and about twenty five feet high at the shoulder, uh, and they come from a different stock, so they don't get end up with long necks or long tails in the same way. Uh, but there is it, energetically, it's an expensive way to live to be a very, very large, bi-sized animal. And uh, the biggest drawback we can see when we look at living elephants, which are the largest we have on Earth today, is that uh, as you reach those large body sizes, you have such a high volume, because volume increases a cube versus your, and, and your mass increases a cube versus your surface area, that your biggest constraint is getting rid of body heat. And for an endotherm, a mammal like an elephant, most of their time is spent cooling down whether it's in a mud hole or, or sleeping in the shade or doing what the reason they have big ears, of course, not to hear with. That's to get the, the heat out of their system. And mm. they are not anywhere near as big as the Dricothere rhinos or, for that matter, most large dinosaurs. So to get to that really gigantic body size, there are lots and lots of constraints that they have to deal with. And uh, a lot of people have speculated that you know, even if there were a group of mammals that could do that, at, at, when you're completely endothermic like a mammal, you're, you really don't want to be endothermic because you'd be so much generating so much body heat, you could not find a way to get rid of it. And elements are right at the thresh, threshold right now and not being able to survive with the amount of body heat they generate versus their surface area. Uh, so we, we're, we're almost certain that at least the really large dinosaurs, the sauropods, could not have been endotherms because that would be almost impossible for them to get rid of the body heat they would generate that they probably would call gigantothermy or inertial homeothermy, where they just let their body temperature fluctuate like a lizard does, but by the virtue of huge size, they're very stable. And remember, living in the Mesozoic, the world was very mild. It was the peak of a greenhouse climate from the early Jurassic onward, so there wasn't any freezing temperatures anywhere on Earth. So, you know, the, to their, the, you know that side of lifestyle works okay in a planet where there's no freezing temperatures and uh, you're not worried about other things, but it may make a big difference in a world like we have today. Those are just speculations, but those are constraints that we can, you know, identify. So, and uh, just to get back to what you were discussing earlier, you were talking about Monster Quest and the tracks that were found. Um, alleged tracks. Yes. Alleged tracks. So, what is some of the evidence that's been uncovered for the creature? Um, that's about it. Ancient? I mean, there have been a handful of uh, photographs and drawings of tracks. There is on that same Monster Quest episode they make. This big fuss about this little hole in the bank of a river, which as far as I can tell is a crocodile burrow, which they don't even know enough biology to realize there are other ways you have animals make holes in the ground than, than just dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the, the strangest part of the story, of course, is they claim, oh, well, this, well, Kelly Babembe, and it's not a very big hole, so it couldn't be a very big animal, crawls in this hole and then 
and fills it in behind itself, which is not something you hear many animals doing, except rodents, maybe. Uh, so every time they talk, they sound like they don't know anything about real biology. So that's one of the reasons I thought there might be something suspicious about their backgrounds when I heard that. Yeah, they, they, they seem very surprised by a deep spot in the river, too. So. Yeah, yeah. And then a good the quarter of the episode is those various types of uh, sonar they were trying to use. Well, all you can get is echoes, and you could be looking at a large fish, you could be looking at a crocodile, you could look at a hippo. You can't tell the difference, not unless they surface. So, and that's that's relevant to the previous claims because every time someone has come up with a fuzzy photograph or some kind of an, uh, you know, any kind of image that has been generated, and there are not many of them, they're all really poor quality. Now, that should sound familiar. Uh, they always end up if you if you can resolve what they are at all, they could probably end up being hippos or you know two men in a boat or something like that. Uh, most of the time, there's no way to tell at all what they are. One of the ideas about where people got the ideas for dragons was that uh, you know people may have right. come across dinosaur bones and mistaken right. them, not knowing of any other creature whose bones are quite that big. They must be dragons. Um, is there anything like that in the, in the story of the Well, Monday? not that I recognize. Um, and the bigger issue is that where these supposed creatures live, they don't going to see very many large bones of anything like that. Uh, the, the big sauropod bones that came out of the ground came from the drier part of the eastern part of Africa, Tanzania, and also some from southern Africa. Uh, so it, unlikely that these cultural groups which don't travel very far outside the Congo Basin are, are exposed to that. In the same way that Adrian Muir might say, you know, the, the bones of tra- Proceratops might, might have dragon story, but they were right near the Silk Route, so they can, people coming to and from China to, all the way to the Middle East are much more likely to encounter that legend than they would be in a place that's less culturally mixed like Africa, which has all these very distinct tribal regions that don't very often trade very far. So it's a possibility, but I don't know how much that influences it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Yeah, one of the other uh, surprises there, too, is that um, at the time of killing Mbembe was a hot topic among cryptozoologists. This is also in the days when Roy Mackle was still active. Uh, you know, he spent a good chunk of his later years after he went off the deep end with Loch Ness Monster. But year, years and years going back to Congo, and uh, you know, he was the one who wrote a whole book on the topic, mostly talking about his expeditions. 
And he, some of you know the story of Roy McElhinney. You know, he was a perfectly legitimate University of Chicago uh, fly fly uh, biologist, right? He worked on genetics of fruit flies, like many people did in the 60s and early 70s. And then once he saw the Loch Ness monster story, or apparently thought he saw it in the Loch Ness itself, he never went back to doing genetics again. He was uh, one of the cryptozoologists, but he was tenured, so it didn't matter. <laughs> he could do anything he wanted. And so Mackel spent a lot of time in, in doing this, and uh, I read his book on the stuff, and uh, and it's what's striking about that is that all of that uh, it's sort of in the, the, the mental blueprint of what they're talking about as a sauropod comes from what people thought about sauropods in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so they're trying to match an image of the sauropod that actually really dates almost to the turn of the last century as these big sluggish creatures that live deep in the swamp, you know, and all that stuff. And the irony is, at the same time Mackel is doing this, the whole image of dinosaurs, and especially sauropods, transformed completely. Because as we got more and more trackways and more and more evidence of the sediment environments in which these animals live, it's clear they never lived in swamps. They didn't sit in any kind of deep water at all. These are guys are basically dinosaur and giraffes. They lived in open, fairly dry habitats in only seasonally wet conditions. Uh, their long necks are not for snorkeling. Their long necks are reaching tops of trees. And so at this point now, what we've learned with all the new science of sauropods is they look nothing like the image you might have from the classic 19th century, you know, sluggish creature in the swamp. But that's exactly the image they're trying to match, which tells you that it's a cultural phenomenon and not a real one. Because if, sorry, if we're right about what sauropods really were like, the last place you look would be in the Congo jungle, in the water. They're not water creatures, so as far as we can tell at all. <laughs> which is, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that people they go by the culture image of their time or some kind of prevailing meme that comes along when, say, the first big reporter Nessie's image comes and everybody follows in their footsteps and you get years of people copying each other. Uh, it has exactly the cultural type of image, not the kind that we respect, you know, for the biology or what we know in this case, the paleontology's animals. So. Where are most of the stories coming from? Are they coming from locals or from tourists, or are there people actively in search of Well, the yeah, the, the early ones are set from missionaries in the turn of the, uh, the late 19th century, early 20th century. Then, you know, a series of uh, you know, various explorers crossing the region, you know, who picked up mostly from, you know, it usually comes from a cultural legend which they then repeat. And you don't know how much of that was translated correctly and mm -hmm. what the native people really meant when they said it and who good, how good the translator was in the first place. So there's the suspicion there. Uh, but so far, no non-native African has apparently seen what can live maybe as far as I can tell, uh, although they claim to have photographed at a great distance again whenever we see any of these images. There's nothing there that can be resolved that tells us they saw anything. It's almost entirely from native accounts that... that uh, you know, white men have uh, reported and then sometimes probably garbled, as we you know, typically find out. Um, and now the last few expeditions have all been entirely creationist mount. Ever since Mackel stopped being active in this area, because he's in his 90s now, I guess, uh, the creationists are the only ones doing this. And it's very clear. I mean, they have on their website exactly what they're doing when they make these expeditions, Gibbons especially. It's all about, you know, proving evolution wrong. You know, if the coelacanth didn't prove it wrong, then somehow a dinosaur will be... You know, we have animals that survive as living fossils all over, but creationists can't get through their heads. It's not going to change that much because we have dinosaurs flying outside the window right now. So that, that, That's a problem. I, I really, yeah, I don't understand it. At some point, we really need to hunker down and get on uh, one of these creationist uh, researchers and talk to them about what they're looking for. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my assumption is that their goal 
is in in their mind is to undermine uh, yeah. evolution. Well, they say that explicitly. Right. Well, right. yeah, yeah. Especially on a fundraising, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that's, uh, they believe somehow that all science will come tumbling down if they find something yeah. that is decided to be extinct. Just like supposedly the seal can't. They well didn't change anything, right? Right, but they, they already think evolution's flawed anyway. Right, so right. you know, I don't. But be, I well, guess, I, I, I have a feeling it's a combination of this seems to be to, to that they think of this as a worthy goal for their kind of again research and research with quotations around it. Uh, but also, I think it has the glamour. Uh huh. It, it is. It's sexy, sexy, sexy it side. It's dinosaurs sexy. Dinosaur exploring. Sexy. You could probably pry more money out of churchgoers doing that than you can your conventional missionary. Yeah, this is Indiana appeal. Jones stuff. I yeah. mean, this is a. These are Indiana Jones on the amateur side, but yes. <laughs> Indiana Jones is an amateur. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, he's, his uh, character is actually borrowed from a famous paleontologist. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Roy Chapman Andrews is the model yeah. for Indiana Jones. Yeah. He's a paleontologist. I've watched some really, I don't know if they're accurate, but good documentaries, very entertaining documentaries about him. So yeah, He was a colorful character in all the worst and best senses of the words. So. Yeah. Likeable. So, so what, uh, what creatures are the creationists going in search of in particular? Uh, they still have Nessie uh, expeditions, as far as I understand. I haven't followed it closely because Daniel's working on that topic. But uh, the, I know they still are interested in Nessie, too, because they're convinced whether Nessie turns out to be a plesiosaur or a, or a bacillosaur zooglodon type of whale, either one would somehow overthrow evolution. I think those are the two main ones they've focused on. I don't think they get tremendously excited about chupacabra or Bigfoot. Well, the, there actually was one chupacabra that was found in Blanco, Texas, that uh, appeared in a creationist museum as as disproving evolution. Another mangled coyote? Uh, well, mangled? Yeah, well, the, the, the DNA results are still coming back, but it's certainly a candidate. I, um, yeah. I, this is my opinion, but I think if a chupacabra that matched Tolentino's original description appeared, it would be a pretty serious challenge to evolution. Well, yeah. it certainly <laughs> it's, it's certainly a, right now it's a dragon kind of creature. But it's <laughs> Indeed, positive many things that don't make sense. Yeah, it's a, what do they call it? Chimera. So yeah, yeah so. it's got a features that only only movie monsters have those features. Never yeah. once. Really, very well put. <laughs> <laughs> well, what struck me was that, that when you're talking about the, the creationists, is that um, I'd, I'd written before about uh, Noah's Ark, right? And there's you know every about every four or five years there's a there's Another a creationist-inspired expedition to find Noah's Ark, and it's, oh, it's been found at least four or five times that I right. know of. That's right. And it's funny that they keep refining the damn thing, and usually yeah. in the more or less the same spot. And they, I mean, and they go get a big publicity push, a big press release, yeah. where they claim they yeah. made the find, and somehow they've got a piece of wood that, of course, they don't believe in radiocarbon days, so how they established that, I don't know, but... But then you just never hear about it again because it's never followed up until, on until they find it again. And, and, yeah, and it's never actually submitted to any legitimate scientist for any kind of further testing, which means it dies and it's forgotten until they do it all over. Well, they saw bits of it on eBay. I mean, it's like right. they, they drag out their greatest hits like a rock and roll group just to do it, to raise the money over and over and over again. And their <laughs> audience is so gullible, they just keep paying for the same tunes. <laughs> there, well, there's lots of people who still believe Noah's Ark is a, oh, it's a well, true story. If 40% of the American public... Yeah. Is and the Gallup polls say he believes in literal creationism. That's probably a good number. Yeah. When when you become a skeptic, if if you started off as a religious person, you have to sort of step through your stories of the Bible and start to say, well, is this one true? Is that one yeah. true? Is that yeah. one true? When you get to Noah's Ark, 
Um, I, I know a lot of people, because I've looked at their websites, have tried to explain why it's not true. Uh, as someone uh, with a very good, strong science education, how do you approach that uh, Noah's Ark question? What, what, what do you think is the most damning evidence against Noah's Ark? Well, the two main things um, <laughs> is that when the Noah's Ark story was conceived by Bronze Age shepherds, the only animals they knew were a small number of animals in the Middle East, and it was very conceivable that you could imagine every animal you knew fitting in a boat that size. Uh, and then ever since the late eight, uh, 1700s, early 1800s, of course, the age of exploration, you know, showed the planet was incredibly more diverse than it ever was, uh, visualized by Europeans or by Middle Easterners. And, of course, we are now at one and a half million species on this planet and counting. And so, of course, now modern creationists are shoehorn this old Bronze Age myth into some kind of reality have to do all sorts of incredible you know, mental gyrations and, and contortions to twist it in. So they have the baramine, you know, the created kinds in the Bible where they squeeze all of dog evolution, all of cat evolution. They literally can see most of evolution just to reduce all of it to one dog and one cat that's on the ark. And all lions and tigers and house cats and all the rest are one baramine. Therefore, one cat kind was on the ark. And everything that's... Well, that's basically the seed of all the mammal evolution right there. So I've heard that before. So how does that work then? All of the evolution that we have happened in... 5,500 oh, no. years? Yeah. That's right. Well, it, it, they, they, they believe in a, a, a Earth that's only 6,000 years old. No story younger than that. They're having rates of evolution way exceed any bacterial rate of evolution. Right. It's really quite impressive. Uh, yeah, but it's ironic because here they are both denying evolution and affirming it in the same sense in some yeah. cases. Wow. Uh, and then the other twist about that, which comes from it, is that in the time of the Middle Eastern uh, shepherds who made up these stories... Uh, you know, a limited number of organisms they knew and they didn't know much about anything outside their part of the world. You know, they're very limited uh, interchange. The world was discovered and to be much more diverse as jungles of South America and Southeast Asia and Africa were, were uh, examined and studied in the 1700s and 1800s and hundreds more species were found. And the pattern, one of the things that was strikingly one of Darwin's strongest lines of evidence, which they always ignore, by the way, is biogeography. Right? The pattern of where animals are today and where they got, how they got to where they are today. And for example, in Australia, until dingoes and a few other things were introduced, mostly by humans, there were no native mammals in Australia that weren't marsupial. Mm -hmm. And you ask creationists, well, why is it that all the marsupials somehow walked to Australia from Mount Ararat and nowhere else on the planet except for a couple in South America do you find them? Makes absolutely no sense and they have no explanation, but of course they don't think that way. So. That's, and Darwin had that basically evidence marshaled in 1859. Monster dog. What, what you can boil this down to is, number one, of course, evidence, the evidence for is virtually non-existent. It's almost all uh, tribal descriptions and reports which are garbled to various degrees by translation you can't trust. Almost no non-native Africans have ever been... Uh, oh, we're back on Makila Bebebe now. Right, we're on Makila Bebebe. <laughs> stay on topic here. Um, and so there is no eyewitness evidence by a non-native African that I know of, and certainly uh, no photographic or other you know, translatable evidence that we can rely on. That's certainly powerful negative evidence right there, but it's not the only one. Uh, as we mentioned already, the fossil record of Africa is excellent. We know dinosaurs don't exist other than birds anywhere outside of the world after 65 million years ago. In particular, Africa, we have plenty of good places where we can see large animals that could have lived at that time and dinosaurs don't, don't show up. Uh, and then their conception of what this animal is like is based on a sauropod model from a century ago. And that's the sauropod we know today. So they're trying to fit last the last cultural meme 
when there's no actual biological reason to believe that it was ever real to begin with. And we saw the same thing with the, the Loch Ness Monster, when the idea of the Nessie uh, as a plesiosaur hypothesis. Right, right. Um, the the swan neck surgeon's photo. Right, right. Uh, we talked about that before. And I don't want Lauren... I think every time we mention this, Lauren Coleman has a, a, a small stroke because he's like, nobody thinks that anymore. I'm like, okay, well... There's still a lot of people who do think that. Yes, right. It's, it's, it's the same way that you get the, the you know, creation to say, "Well, we don't agree with that one," but of course, it, they're, they're they're rank and file do. So. Right, lots do. So, uh, and so those are very important lines of evidence. Uh, and then the broader thing, which applies to all large cryptids, uh, the Nessie and to Bigfoot and all the rest, which is it's not a singleton. It's got to be a significant population, and the world's remote places are much less remote than people recognize anymore. Okay. Uh, you know, it's not like maybe a century ago when there were huge unexplored areas of Africa and huge unexplored areas of other jungles of the world and much of the Pacific Northwest is unlogged and barely inhabited, right? Now you can't walk anywhere in a, in a forest in the Pacific Northwest and not run into somebody. It's so heavily logged and so heavily traveled. And we have satellites, not only military satellites, but you can go to Google Earth and see an elephant from space. I mean, I have the, the, the web link and a couple of hits that I made when I looked at Google Earth. And, that's and neat. You can pick out exact, exact uh, details at that scale from just Google Earth, which is not even military-quality uh, satellite surveillance. Um, so we're talking about an area where it's not so possible to hide that many large animals anymore. I mean, the, the jungles of the, uh, the Congo are just not that unknown anymore. Maybe a century ago they were, they were still unknown. It was possible to hide the Okapi a century ago. I mean, these are much bigger, and they supposedly live out in open rivers. Of course, that doesn't make any sense anymore, but that's what they say. Uh, even an animal like that still has to come up for air, okay? And it still has to have something to eat, and it's still it's going to be seen by someone other than a native African. And now when you have satellites transversing the area all the time, and you have all this long-term record for the air, it's going to show up, you know? There's a lot more sightings. Well, what about, what about the, some of the expeditions that were done, that weren't done by creationists? You talk about some of the more recent ones were done by creationists, but uh, right. Roy, Roy Mackle was not a creationist as far as right. I know. Roy Mackle was one of the last was, before the creationists. Right. There was, uh, I think, at least one or two Japanese television. Right, pro- right. So can you give us uh, examples of two or three expeditions? Yeah, there's uh, Marisa like, Ganya. Who, who financed them and what they did? Yeah, the, the, I haven't found too much about who financed them, but I'm sure it's, it's similar in many cases that... They're, they're, you know, they were, the Japanese television obviously was just like Monster Quest, probably funded in, in order to get footage to create a, create a, a smashing special. And uh, the same is probably true of a lot of these. Uh, I don't know where Roy Mackle got his money from because he was an academic, not a creationist. Uh, but somehow he managed to raise money to do this kind of stuff, although on probably very low budgets. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was just a few dedicated people who just kept wanting to find the myth, you know, and find something that would be spectacular. In the case of a television station, you know, the scoop of the century, if they managed to actually get decent footage, which didn't happen. Um, that's my, my impression of all those stories, is that the, the, there are just a handful of these guys, um, Marisa Gagne and a few others, who seem to do it over and over again, and then and once Mackle stops doing it, then you see the Gibbon has done it like five, six, seven times, I think, that I could count so far. Uh, it's a very small number of actual people who do it, and, and they're, uh, you know, they, they don't seem to have a lot of funding behind them, but it's, certainly it isn't that expensive, apparently, to yep. get yourself up well, the river. When was the first, I mean, most of these were in the 70s and 80s, right? When was the first uh, expedition that you know of to go, go find it? Um, I don't know. The, the, all the accounts before the, the burst of, of the stuff in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were all basically accidental. There were people, you know, travelers and or explorers who were looking for anything and happened to find natives, people who told them stories. 
but not one of them has, as far as I know, an eyewitness account uh, that wasn't from a native. It's been a while since I read uh, Ivan Sanderson's Things and More Things, but it seems like he was on an expedition and missed seeing something. By yeah, there's a lot of those. Just like, that close, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, also, did, did, was it Hoivelmans? Is that how you say that? I always yeah. Uh, did he actually go to Africa and look? I know he did a lot of other research. I don't, I don't recall him mentioning that. I mean, yeah, yeah. when that story became popular, Hoivelmans, like all the rest, are scooped it up yeah. and made it part of their you know, their common cryptid lore. And it was, I, know, I know Sanderson knew it by name, knew it by Michiel and Bobimbe, right. and uh, so. Well, Sanderson, of course, is an interesting character because. Uh, Yes, he is. He is uh, more of a you know, self-taught zoologist. I mean, he had some academic training, but he never went to a doctorate. And you can always tell he had that chip on his shoulder as not being a professional zoologist. And his main period of activity as a real explorer was in the 1920s and 1930s, if you look at his biography. Uh, he did some stuff later in his life, but he most of his primary you know, field work was early in his life, as you would expect. And at a time when the you know, when the jungles of the world were not well uh, understood and not as many white people had traveled through them, uh, so yeah, it, it, from his perspective, you know, in the time that he was doing this, there were lots of possibilities of strange things showing up because we just didn't know that much about much of those parts of the world. We're now almost a full century later, and none of these jungles are that virgin anymore. They've all been traveled by a variety of different zoologists. There's, there's hundreds of different kinds of zoologists working on other kinds of problems all over that Congo Basin every year. And uh, the, the point being, they're, they're professional zoologists, and they're keeping their eyes open, right? They're, they may be focused on one research problem, but they're not ignoring other animals they see when they're there. And the point, these are the people, the professionals, who, if they reported something, then I would take it seriously. Uh, and yet the point is, like in many other cases, there are more and more people looking than ever than before. And the evidence is getting worse rather than better, which is the exact opposite expectation you'd have if these things are real, that the more you look, the more you'd find. But in fact, the more you look, the less you find, which is sort of a description of almost all the other cryptids. It was, I was thinking, get, the more it, popular they get, the less we find this Yeah, it's the same problem with Bigfoot. The, yes, uh, the, and Nessie you know, and all the rest. People yeah. keep talking about um, wanting to have more uh, trail cams and more people out there in the field looking and and they ignore the fact that you know we have hair traps all over the pacific northwest for bear population management yeah um and lots of professional zoologists right all over those regions all year round yeah and they know their animals they know their spore they know their tracks yeah and uh, they know how to tell when there's a bear bone on the ground those are easy to recognize i'm always willing to take a look at a bigfoot body if it shows up but i know Provisionally, I have given up on the big guy. Not in a Georgia locker, though. So. <laughs> no, no, but that would be a much shorter drive. So. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you got anything else you want to say about McKinley Mbembe? Are we good? I, I feel like we're yeah, really... I don't know how much questions. you need to do. I, that covered most of the major things. that. I no, I think this is good. This is good. And um, so, was it, What about this book you're talking about? We're down to the... When Daniel gets back from this meeting, he's supposed to put the finishing touches on sea monsters, and we're done with writing. Nice. Well, first draft writing, and then yeah. we have, uh, you know, some editing and going back and forth. This ended up being a, a uh, sort of a, uh, you know, two voice approach to writing it because every chapter is either completely mine or completely Daniel's in most respects. And Daniel tackled the biggest of all, Bigfoot and uh, Nessie are the two biggest chapters in the book, which Daniel took on. Uh, and um, so it's it's a kind of thing where. Uh, we'll probably try to edit a little bit so that we're a little more consistent, but at the moment, Daniel calls it good cop, bad cop, and you can guess who the bad cop is. 
because uh, I'm the hard, hard-ass uh, professional paleontologist, and so I take a little more hard-ass than that than he does. Because he started as a uh, so it's like a buddy cop movie too. Yeah, that's like, right. Uh, <laughs> and then the plan is, uh, in fact, it's already out in review, and some of you have copies of chapters to look at it when you're ready. Uh, but um, we want to get get the production going this fall. We've already got title and cover art uh, being discussed back and forth between our editors and ourselves. Uh, and then Daniel's got it, some art; he's got to produce, and then it's out of our hands. Hopefully, in a few months. So we're targeting it'll be out this time next year. Title. Uh, um, at the moment, it's sort of open air. I'm going with Real Monsters Cryptozoology Examined. But who knows what will end up being. So it's a discussion right now. So. Well, if it's in post. Cool. No. You have to have a, a catchy first primary title because that's always get truncated. Mm-hmm. Can't be too long. So Real Monsters question mark, I think, would work. But then I wanted to put Cryptozoology subtitle because not that many people know what cryptozoology is yet. Uh, in, in this circle, we do, obviously. But in, in the red general world, when I say cryptozoology, we get these blank stares. So I said, okay, we better talk about either put Nessie and Yeti and, and Bigfoot in the title or something like that. Yeah, so monsters or, yeah, or something, yeah. That's right. And, and we didn't want to infringe too much on your monster talk version. So we, yeah, we're, 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 we're still batting around. We'll see. It hasn't been decided yet. So. The, you know, mine's not profitable. Or, is it, <laughs> or not for profit. It, not not well, the same thing. Uh, let's put it this way. When yeah. Daniel puts yeah. his amazing <laughs> art skills, uh, it's a good thing. This should have... Uh, even though the, you know, the cryptozoologists uh, don't like our message, probably uh, they'll probably buy it just to get angry. Yeah, and but it's, well, it's, yeah, it's so beautiful too. So, yeah. I, well, what I've read so far has been chock full of science, and even though they disagree on the conclusions, most of the cryptozoologists I've talked to are really interested in science. Yeah, they just have a different worldview. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's, so. It's a little bit like religion. You know, it has a. A, uh, a, a subliminal or a sub-psychological importance them to these things be real. And yeah, well... You, know, you can only rationally argue them up to a certain point, and then they shut down, just like any religious they, person defending creationism would. That's a... You know, we could do a whole episode on that, but that they live in a magical, beautiful, interesting sure. world full of mystery and wonder. Right. We do, too, but our mysteries are a lot freaking harder to figure out because... We know, like, you know, the, the physics mysteries are, are deep. And yeah, um, yeah. the is there uh, a monster in the Congo? Well, that's, I could just as well imagine a monster yeah. in my backyard. I mean, yeah. the, you know, um, it's that there's a level of wonder, I think, that we have that's equally wonderful, right. wondrous, interesting, magical. But I think we seek to turn our magic into knowledge, right? Right, so, right. So. And, uh, you know, there's... Uh, you know, I I, I did a, I did the final chapter, which I guess Karen's looked at already, and and uh, how's it in? Spoilers. <laughs> and the, the, the final chapter is uh, I did my best to dig up all I could find about how cryptozoologists think mm-hmm. and why is it the cryptozoologists cling to these beliefs in spite of evidence and all the rest. And it comes down to the basic thing you find with all the other paranormality type of things. You know, even though your 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 Lauren Coleman's and others will say, oh, we don't want to have a truck with those UFO types. In fact, most people who believe in cryptids believe in UFOs. The paranormality basically covers all of it, and people who believe in one paranormal tend to believe in another. And there was a big Baylor religious survey, Baylor et al. just published, which just came out a book about paranormal beliefs. And basically, when you ask them these questions, and although though the, the handful of really prominent cryptozoologists want to stay miles away from the UFOs and, and, and other stuff like that, you know, you go deep, dig deep enough, most of their followers, you know, actually believe in both. And occasionally you get a, a, a Bigfooter, for example, who thinks that they are you know, UFO type of uh, supernatural beings. Uh, it isn't a very fine, it's a sharp line after all, as much as they like to pretend it is. 
And then it goes through deeper questions of why people believe weird things, which is a really interesting topic to itself. So. Sure. It's a fascinating chapter, and no one's really written about it. In, yeah, I thought that was depth. something that was incumbent to be done. You know, if we're taking an overview of cryptozoology as a field, and, of course, mentioning all these players in the various chapters who have been involved in this or that cryptid, uh, but the threads keep coming out. As you see individuals, you see certain motivating factors in common, or you see things like creationism in common between two or three different cryptid hunters and and uh, you know a lot of these people, a lot of these people that, that were in Brian Regal's new book about uh, eggheads and so mm-hmm. on. And you guys did an interview with Brian, I guess, right? Um, uh, he you know he points it out that there is that the other underlying tension is that a century and a half ago, or even a century ago, the people who did the kind of research that cryptozoologists still do, which is just tramping around the bushes finding new beasts, was normal science. And then zoology professionalized itself. And again, professional zoologists have whole level now of expertise and understanding about mathematics and, and the physics of ecology that is simply more than just finding new beasts. And meanwhile, now the cryptozoologists are still doing it the way they did it in the Ivor Sanderson's youth. And so your, your consequence is now you have professional zoologists who do field work. The field work is constrained by a very different worldview and by lots of things that they know about biology and ecology that are not Part of the, the you know the amateur tramping through the bushes looking for Bigfoot, and so their underlying tension, which is this you know going as as Rodrigo points out between the eggheads, the academics, and the and the cranks, the, the cryptozoologists, and how they you know basically don't trust each other, and when one has a big chip on the shoulder, the professionals put them down. The professionals have their own attitudes toward the amateurs. So in the case of our book, we have an amateur and a professional. And, co-authors so we get a little vote it's going to be very interesting (laughs) I I wish you luck with it I hope it's very successful well that was as I said last year it was was a surprise to look at Amazon.com's 25 top or 50 top bestsellers cryptos well and this is where Ben's book came out so it wouldn't have counted then Uh, and all the titles were pro-crypted you know, down to sure. 25. Sure. And I think, oh, well, there's got to be some kind of a pushback. You know, there's got to be a market for, even if Crypto Wallets want to read books that tell them what they want to hear, they probably will at least get mad at a book that doesn't agree with them. And if it's beautifully illustrated as Daniel does, maybe it'll make a difference. I hope it does. So, there you go. Well, when the book comes out, we'll probably bring you back again. Yeah. But let me, yeah. I'll go ahead. It's by this time next year, so we can yeah. do this damn next year. Yeah. Monster Dog. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard an interview with Dr. Don Prothero concerning the creature known as Machilima Bimbe and the overall idea of sauropod dinosaurs living in the modern times. Monster Talk is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. Your hosts are myself, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno. If you enjoyed today's episode or hated it or want to comment or interact with other listeners, I suggest you come to monstertalk.org or skeptic.com and look for our contact information. We have an active Facebook group, which is updated frequently by the hosts and by the listeners. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. If you enjoy the show and want to help ensure future episodes are made, the easiest thing to do is to share the show with your friends and give us a review on iTunes. Those two simple acts help others find the show and seeing our subscriber numbers rise helps us know we're doing things right. But you may be asking yourself, what else can I do? Well, let me tell you. We're currently working on a project to transcribe our episodes. It costs us about 70 bucks to get a transcript, depending on the length of the episode. Your contributions have already paid for the first two transcriptions. Thanks. This project is very important because the transcripts will help Google be able to find us, which will help grow the listener base. 
Even if you just donate a buck or two with PayPal, it would be helpful. This will also be very helpful for an upcoming project, which I want to do, which will bring the episodes to YouTube with closed captioning and visual aids. Listeners like Robert Smith, James Nealon, Adam Fitch, David Rodriguez, and Wesley Adams, your contributions have been so helpful, and we salute you. The views and opinions expressed on Monster Talk are those of the hosts and the interviewees, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Music for the intro today included traditional African music from archive.org, made available through a Creative Commons license. This was from a collection of Congo music and sounds collected by Thomas Ladon. A link to this music is in the show notes. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And once again, thanks for listening. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. What's wrong? This bone is about 80 years old. No. There's no, no point in showing me that, Susan, my dear. I, I wrote it. Don't you remember? This, I think, is more that you should be looking at. Oh, no. It's not a giraffe. Or am I just a total idiot? <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.